I'm Charlotte Leslie and I'm the director of CMEC. Saudi Arabia has become used to massive change happening rapidly. On March the 3rd, 1938, oil was first discovered in Dammam in the east of the kingdom, and a society that had remained largely unchanged for hundreds of years underwent a seismic transformation. Now, Saudi Arabia has instigated rapid economic and social change once more. As the world tries to wean itself off fossil fuels in the fight against climate change, this largely oil-dependent economy is determined to transform itself to thrive into a new era. Saudi Arabia's extraordinary programme of transformation has a name, Vision 2030, encompassing the ambitious deadline the kingdom has set for itself. In a series of podcasts, in partnership with the King Faisal Centre for Research and Islamic Studies, We will be looking at Vision 2030 five years in and its potential impact on the region and the world. To discuss Vision 2030, I'm joined by two eminent Saudi experts, Huda El-Holesi, a member of the Shura Council, and Dr. Yusuf Al-Shamari, an oil expert with a PhD in chemical engineering, currently working at OPEC, where he advises on the future of energy. Huda, Dr. Al-Shamari, welcome. Hello. 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 If I might start with you, Huda, just just an overview. How would you sum up Vision 2030 and its importance for the kingdom and its future? I think that it's very important to keep in mind that Saudi Arabia is a young country, that it is evolving rather than just developing. It is a young country where the population is today around 70% under the age of 30. It's a framework for us where education is important, where there are three main uh, themes uh, or umbrellas uh, that we are focusing on. The first one being a vital society, the second one a thriving economy, and the third one being an ambitious nation. Those are the three, three main pillars of Vision 2030. And under these pillars or within these pillars, all the other elements of the puzzle fall into place to create a new modern Saudi Arabia that is competitive and global at the same time. And I think that within the last five years, to see the population jump on the wagon, as it were, of Vision 2030 is amazing because it has been structured in such a way that it has been easy to do so. And I think that that is probably one of the elements that make it very different from any other roadmaps around the world. Dr. Yusuf, Saudi Arabia that we know today is a country very largely built on oil and it's seeking to move away from that model. Just how dependent on oil has the Saudi economy become in recent years? And what is the scale of the challenge that Vision 2030 is endeavouring to meet? Since the current Prince Mohammed bin Salman has launched the 2030 vision back in 2016, there has been quite a lot of ambitious targets that the kingdom is trying to achieve. And I believe the main target economic target of the 2030 vision is to reduce Saudi Arabia's conventional dependence on oil. And there has been, of course, between 2016 until now, we are in the end of 2021, a lot has been achieved. And I believe there's still a lot of work to be done in, uh, in, in order to achieve all the targets of the, of the vision of 2030, economically speaking. 
I believe, for example, if we go back to before, like you said before, Prince Mohammed launches the vision. The kingdom GDP of oil used to be over 90%. But today, I believe the, uh, the non-oil sector on the GDP contributes to at least 30%. And I believe this is an important achievement. Of course, a lot of these economic reforms have come from non-oil sectors that could include um, reducing unemployment in the public sector, efficient spending policies, introducing VAT taxes, and that can that's something that we haven't seen in the past, let's say uh, 10 years ago. Introducing also the sustainable energy initiatives that seeks to enhance Saudi Arabia's looking into alternative sources of energy that includes hydrogen, solar, and, and including or even the increasing the, the contribution of uh, petrochemical sectors and the total GDP. So I believe um, amazing achievements have been done, but there's still a lot of work to be done moving ahead in the, until the year 2030. And the, uh, also here, there is uh, one important thing is that it is not just how we like to move away from oil up to uh, according to our well, but also global oil markets are kind of an uh, external variable that you cannot control because when Saudi Arabia decides to move away from oil, but the oil continues to rely on oil as a major source of energy, here when it comes, as uh, you might ask yourself, are we really making the right policy? So I believe here it also depends, yes, there is a national policy to diversify the national economy, and that will also have to be supported by an international trends towards diversifying all types of energy sources. But I believe the progress that has been done so far is excellent. Huda, from your perspective, how much has been achieved in the last five years? On the social level, definitely a lot more than anybody could have expected. But I, I must emphasize that I think that Vision 2030 was really just a trigger. We were bound to reach the stage eventually at the pace of its population. The difference is that with Vision 2030, there was a push to make this change happen faster. We mustn't forget that we are a very traditional society. We mustn't forget that a lot of people have had to leave their comfort zone to embrace something that is completely to them out of the ordinary, out of the traditional, out of the conservative. And obviously the main changes that we have seen relate to women, relate to women empowerment, relate to the workforce, whereas before we had something like 13%, before Vision 2030, 13% uh, women working in different sectors, but mainly the educational and the uh, health sectors, because they are the traditional sectors to work in for women at the time. Um, and we have now managed to reach, as of last year, I believe, something like 30, 33% of the workforce being women. So that in itself, the fact that legislation has helped change the mechanisms for women to be in the workforce, to work in different sectors, to work in also decision-making positions, have had a crucial impact on society. And one of the first changes that you notice if, if anybody has been to Saudi Arabia prior to these changes is the fact that you see women very visibly in places like cashiers and supermarkets or in malls uh, um, on the floor selling things. And this was quite unseen at the time. Again, I think it is, it's not really fair to compare a country to another because I don't think that there is one 
country that is so perfect that they have a magic wand and say, you know, abracadabra, let's change Saudi Arabia that has all these, you know, all these challenges and obstacles to make it a modern country. No, we are not in a place or in the desire of imitating any other country. We are looking for modernity, yes, to cater for our population, yes, especially the younger people who have had an education abroad, but at the speed and understanding of our people and modernity that's specific to Saudi Arabia and that will cater not just to the globalized necessity of the country, but also to the fact that we need to share and keep and save our traditions and our religion, uh, respecting those main aspects of our society. So we are really evolving into a new Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia that is going to be very much in the foreground, not just hopefully not just, you know, in the Middle East, but I think that also globally, and that is part of the, the, the goals that we do have. Hoda, thank you. Before I return to Dr. Youssef about the challenges of such a fast change on infrastructure, I think sometimes it's easier to build cities and faster to build cities than it is necessarily to change minds. Mm -hmm. And in the spirit, I think being humble about our own challenges here in, in the West, we are experiencing a great division of our populations, but seen in both the USA and the UK, between the more traditional rural population and the much more mobile, metropolitan, socially progressive and liberal um, urban populations. Is that something that you are seeing in Saudi Arabia? Is there a challenge to bring along the more rural, traditional communities with Vision 2030? I mean, I know how quickly the kingdom's changing. That must be quite hard for some people to come to terms with and quite hard to keep them included in the changes that are happening. Is that yeah, the most, case? Most, most definitely. I think that governments and legislation move faster than mindsets. And that push to include everybody, and I think inclusion is an important term uh, with regards to change, has been very challenging. It would be insane and most definitely a lie to say that these differences do not exist. They do exist. And I think it is extremely important that they do stay, that they do exist because any developing country, any evolving country will always have that kind of difference in mindset. And the traditional people will usually remain traditional. It's through education, and we have been very, very lucky that the scholarship program has sent out thousands of young men and women abroad, and have, they have come back with new mindsets, with new ideologies, with new desires for a future that doesn't resemble the future of their parents or their grandparents. It's going to be a new kind of future for them based on what they have seen abroad, but keeping in tune with their religion and with the traditions. But to go back to your question, yes, I think that there is a huge sector of society that is not particularly happy with these changes. I know a lot of women who, who found that the driving of women is not acceptable. However, you look at the streets today, especially in Riyadh, I'm, I'm always surprised to see how many women are actually driving. So change will come, but mindsets are slower to follow. One of the examples that I, I always use is the harassment law that we passed at the Shura. And the reason for this being, and way before even the driving ban was lifted, was because it anticipated the possible problems 
on the ground with regards to problems with women driving or working in a mixed environment. So the harassment law was part of these initiatives that show a fast forward governance or legislation that help women be part of, a, of an active society. In 1990, when I first joined King Saud University, I asked my first year students, how many of you are married? And it, it really surprised me to see that, you know, I mean, these are 18 year old girls, 17, 18 year old girls. I had something like, you know, a minimum of 25 percent of the class that were already married, thinking about their responsibilities and having a, a home and a husband and children, probably. And at the same time, carrying on with the studies. And I asked at the same year of my fourth year students and that number just rose. You know, we're talking about 67 percent were already married. By the time I left in 2012, there were zero married in first year, zero married in fourth year, which shows that it is not a question of just a woman or a girl wanting a career, but it's also the mindsets of the fathers and, and the brothers and the uncles and the families who really have invested or want to invest in the education of their children, of their daughters, as well as their boys. And when I became the head of the uh, translation department for 14 years, I decided that I was just a small group of young girls. I would send them to France for um, a course in the summer with one of the teachers. And the fathers called me and beated all kinds of names under the sun. I'm not even going to go down that road. By the time I left, the fathers were calling me, begging me to choose their girls for the sponsorship program. So it shows how, how far mentalities have changed. Hello, you're listening to CMEX Podcast. I'm Charlotte Leslie, and I'm talking to Saudi experts Huda Al-Halesi of the Shura Council and oil expert Dr. Yusuf Al-Shamari about Vision 2030 and the future of energy. Dr. Yusuf, coming to a big challenge and a fast change of a more physical infrastructure variety, Neom, the city of Neom, new city of Neom, is an extraordinarily ambitious project. Can you briefly describe what it is and how you see it progressing against the enormous expectations that have been placed on it? Well, it's a, it's a very ambitious project which has been announced by the Crown Prince, I believe back in the beginning of 2016, 2017. And the idea of that project is to make use of smart technologies to, to, to build a city that is based on robotics, AI, and the latest digitalization technologies using the, the, the most sustainable energy infrastructure and kind of to build kind of a, a model of a few, how future smart cities would look like. The investment being allocated for Neom is huge. It's a half a trillion US dollar of investments. And I believe certainly you wouldn't see a, a city on the world which such a, let's say, a allocated level of financial resources. Also looking at the site, it's located somewhere northwest of the kingdom that is uh, on a coastal uh, city. And that region in the northwest of Saudi is uh, close to Jordan, not far from Egypt and uh, Palestine, even all close nearby. So I would say the climate there will be quite coolish compared to the climate in the center of the region, which is very, very much desert focused. But also an important reason there, why in uh, northwest of Saudi, because the solar intensity at that part of the region is the highest in, uh, in Saudi. 
and Saudi Arabia is one of the highest solar intensity regions in the world. So that makes solar generation, uh, generation of solar power there, the cheapest in the world, at least than 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, so that is one major reason of the site location. The other thing that would make uh, Neom unique is the robotics and the AI infrastructure that is being promised there. And another major project which is being promised also there, which is the line that is like a, uh, a city to build it on a, on a straight line. So, so Neom is like kind of a major city and there will be subtown within Neom itself. And that the line project is a promise to be a, a subtown where there will be no roads, people can drive pretty or can move from one point to another pretty much depending on uh, smart uh, modes of mobility like fast shuttles and uh, with, they can move from the first point to the last point within a duration of only 20 minutes and it's a like uh, the the distance or let's say the diameter of that town is more than 100 kilometers so you can imagine the innovation pretty much being promised in that uh, city also a major project there is solar desalination so promising to use the seawater resources there and to build a kind of provide domestic drinkable water purely and the energy supplied purely coming from the sun and i believe one of the most innovative solar desalination plants is being built in neom so one important thing that it's a co2 neutral city and these are all just i would say some of the most important features that would make that city quite unique course there's a lot to we can allocate a whole episode just to talk about Neon but let's say these are the most important features and I believe <laughs> the uh, the progress is it's pretty much on track to achieve the let's say phase one and phase two of achieving that uh, ambitious city but let's say by 2030 when the project is actually set to start working so now we are kind of in the design phase and uh, making the infrastructure ready for construction of a city. Thank you. I mean, one of the criticisms that's been made of NEOM is that it's a, it's a great ambitious plan, looks amazing on paper, a lot of very expensive consultancy companies have come up with the idea, but that it will not actually work in practice or that the population in general aren't engaged with it. It's a bit separate. What would you say to people saying that? You'd say that the, that the plan is connected with reality and it's integrated with the country? Well, I, uh, I would 100% agree because if you look at it, I look at Neom as the new oil of Saudi because when we have this a huge investment into that city, then we are essentially attracting people from every different parts of the world to come and visit that city. And that will lead to a sustainable source of, let's say, foreign direct investments coming into, into the country. So looking in the, in the long run, certainly it's, a, it's an amazing way of using the wealth to diversify income. In a, in a quite and making sustainable, let's say, uh, investments over the next 20 to 30 years. So 100%, I would very much be excited with, to see such investments of the oil wealth. As you know, our income is coming from oil. So we are using the oil wealth to invest in smart technology. So this is a, a smart move. May I jump in and say something about that? I think that criticism regarding Saudi Arabia is always a first liner for everybody to use against us. And I think that we have managed to grow quite thick skins because if we were to listen to all the criticisms that come our way, we would never be innovative enough to, to even give it a try. 
And to criticize is easy, and it, uh, it is based on, on many different reasons, though I don't think we have the time to go into them right now, but criticism will always come our way. We will always have that, and, and we have become used to it on every possible subject under the sun regarding Saudi Arabia, starting with women, obviously, um, because things are not taken in the perspective that it should be taken in, and the judgment statements that are done by People who haven't even been to Saudi Arabia, let alone, you know, read anything on Saudi Arabia, just feel that it is the thing to do. So we'll just take the criticisms with a pinch of salt. That's interesting. Do you think there is general frustration amongst the population, the people of Saudi Arabia at the global perception and, and the presentation of the kingdom from, you know, from many aspects of the West? I, I believe there is, but I think that we have, especially in the last few years, become used to it. It's, it's nothing new. I must add that we are partly to blame because we do not do a sufficiently good enough job with our PRing. We are not marketing Saudi Arabia in a proper light because throughout the years or because of our traditional and conservative views, we have always tended to believe that whatever happens at home stays at home and that whatever good that we do regards our country and our population rather than the rest of the world. But unfortunately, people misunderstand a lot of who we are, a lot of what we do. You only have to read, you know, Western newspapers to know how deep that goes. And yet, regardless of all this negativity around Saudi Arabia, one thing is very important to say. We are part of this world and we share with the rest of the world very similar values. We share principles that are not unlike many in the world, and we need each other. <laughs> Regardless of how different we are, we do need each other. And the fact that we partner with so many different countries in the world shows that that necessity and friendship goes way deeper than the criticisms that sell newspapers, because at the end of the day, that's what they do. They sell newspapers. I really believe that we have very good relations with most, if not all, the countries in the world, and the criticisms will come. We will not defend in the sense of defending or justifying how and who we are, because tolerance should come along with the understanding that people are different. And I always quote a verse from the Quran that says that, God says that we created you in different, I'm not quite sure how it goes, but in different tribes so that you can know each other. And I really believe that. I think that tolerance comes with the fact that you respect other peoples and other religions and, and, and other ways of lives and other traditions and what have you, regardless of, of the attacks that we get. So, yes. And in many ways, I guess, Vision 2030 is turning a lot of those popular health perceptions and expectations of Saudi Arabia on its head, empowerment of women, but also when people think of Saudi Arabia, they often think of, of oil. And part of what Vision 2030 is going to be doing, it says is making Saudi a world leader in climate change. Dr. Yusuf, do you think that Saudi being a world leader in tackling climate change is realizable? Do you think it's possible? And how do you think it will affect the rest of the world and other countries in the region if Saudi Arabia does begin to move towards that model? Well, that's an excellent question because uh, recently there has been a major announcement from uh, the Crown Prince on Green Saudi and Green Middle East. Perhaps you've heard about it, 10 billion trees to be planted in the kingdom, 40 billion in the Middle East, so in total 50 
And I believe this is an excellent green initiative uh, to absorb CO2 emissions and kind of to, let's say, uh, reduce the impact of deforestation. So this is an, an excellent, let's say, on the green side. But when it comes to Saudi Arabia as a country mitigating our role and mitigating fighting climate change, I would say it's not only Saudi Arabia, because the world's largest emitters is the U.S., China, and the, mainly the industrial economies, uh, come followed by the EU, and perhaps maybe the EU is doing much better, including the UK, I would say, maybe doing better, better profile in terms of emissions policies. For example, there's a price on carbon, while perhaps we haven't seen strict policies on carbon in China or the US. But when it comes to Saudi, Saudi Arabia is enhancing its profile in climate change because it is the world's largest supplier of oil. And when you have the world's largest, world's largest supply of oil, putting a serious emphasis on CO2 emissions and trying to, let's say, put uh, a lot of the green initiatives that can enhance the world's carbon emissions profile, then that kind of can, let's say, make the oil industry slightly in a better situation compared if Saudi Arabia doesn't make these policies. So I would say the policies being implemented by the kingdom Will, uh, or will enhance the role of oil-producing countries when it comes to the issue of fighting climate change. But it is not just Saudi Arabia who can save the world from the climate change or CO2 emissions, because we need to, to see a global action, and especially from the biggest economies. For example, we had President Biden at the U.S. General Assembly clearly setting out the U.S. targets of 50% reduction by 2030 from the 2005 emissions and to be in CO2 neutral by 2050. That's great. But we have also seen just uh, within the past month, President Biden asking Saudi Arabia for more oil supplies because of rising fuel prices in the U.S. So here where the, I believe there is a dilemma. If you want oil-producing countries to act on a climate, then you have to also bear in mind that the climate agenda can have a price when it comes to energy and energy security and energy prices. Look at now it's happening in, around the world in terms of gas prices, which pretty much, as you read the media, blame has been put on the green policies. Although we have heard Boris Johnson saying it is because the world is emerging out of from a pandemic and that's due to an inflation. But I believe, in my view, it's, uh, there's a lot of factors in here. I believe Saudi Arabia, yes, can be, just to answer your question, we can be a leader on climate, but it is not just Saudi Arabia that can save the world from the adverse effects of the climate change. Certainly, it can lead, let's say, the innovation and the clean oil technologies. It can help the world uh, meet its uh, kind of maintain its dependence on oil while minimizing the impact of CO2 emissions via so-called circular carbon economy. I believe Saudi Arabia can play a pivotal role on that line. But really, we need to see a lot of international action and cooperation when it comes to mitigating climate change. Thank you. I mean, you mentioned the fuel crisis, the ongoing fuel crisis. What specifically, what impact are you expecting Saudi Arabia's diversification away from oil to have on oil markets and on OPEC plus? 100% Saudi Arabia will not leave the markets without supplies. Currently, we are, we are expanding our production capacity to reach 13 million barrels, despite a huge calls from the IEA to limit all oil exploration activities. Like if you heard our energy minister said that clearly uh, in Russia a few months ago. 
And that's, by the way, what's keeping the prices from shooting to $100. That, that's because Saudi Arabia will always maintain its spare capacity, despite any pressures from uh, any, any external, say, entities. But if Saudi Arabia, because of that policy, because of Saudi Arabia wants to maintain the oil well supply, we have seen kind of stable, let's say, prices from being a skyrocketed. And if Saudi Arabia would want to move nationally and reduce its dependence on oil, I was 100% that will not impact its oil exports. But that will kind of enhance its economic resilience from the variation of oil prices. So currently we're trading at $75, maybe, okay, maybe a attractive price. But what if the demand changes to whatever reasons and prices fall to $50 or $40, as we saw last year? Then if Saudi Arabia continues to have an oil as a major source of income, that certainly will make the economy very vulnerable to changes in the prices. And I believe here Saudi Arabia wants to maintain safe supplies to the world oil markets while at the same time enhancing its economic resilience away from oil in a way that doesn't affect its international oil markets. How important do you think fuel subsidy reform will be in doing that? Fuel subsidies have already been reformed, quite a very sensitive issue, but people have accepted it. In the past, say uh, 20 years ago, there has been huge consumption of electricity, especially in the summer season. As you know, mainly we are a hot region, and in the summer temperatures can be well above 40 degrees Celsius. And um, air conditioners play an important part of our electricity consumption. So continued reliance on oil could have led the country at some point unable to meet its export uh, commitments. So, and one major reason of that is what you said, the fuel subsidies, because people used to consume a lot of electricity and perhaps 30% or more of that electricity was subsidized. Now with the new 2030 vision, the subsidies will only go to low income citizens. And that will be via a so-called citizen account in Arabic, we call it Isab al-Muadhan that pays the low-income, middle and low-income citizens part of that subsidy that in the past used to go to the rich. And Prince Mohammed clearly said in one of his interviews that we're having rich people, one rich guy who is using electricity consumption equals 10 low-income families. So that's just not fair. And I believe this is one of the most important reforms that had happened in our electricity markets. So I believe currently people have pretty much paid attention to how much electricity they consume. You would see Saudi houses now all going LED lighting. You would even see them checking the energy efficiency of their air conditioner they're going to buy or the washing machine they're going to use or the TVs. Certainly 20 years ago, it wouldn't be the same as it is now because certain electricity prices now are a lot more expensive than they used to be. And that's one, one, let's say, important achievement of the fuel subsidy policies from the 2030 vision. Thank you. I mean, I guess with any change, there are going to be winners and losers and people are going to have to make sacrifices. Huda, I'm going to ask you, do you think there's a risk or a danger that if the expectations of Vision 2030 aren't met um, and the ambitions aren't realised, that there will be resentment and people will be will lose faith and lose um, the willingness to comply with slightly difficult measures like fuel subsidies. Do you think there's a danger that expectations aren't met? First of all, I believe that 2030 is not necessarily um, 
something that needs to be applied, implemented, and completed by 2030. It is just a, a roadmap. So whether we accomplish some of the goals in 2029, 2025, 2035, it doesn't really matter as long as we are on the right track. And I think that people here are very, in general, very happy with the changes and will carry on. I'm not going to say hoping, but believing in these changes that they will take place, that if we carry on working towards these goals together. And I think it's, it's important to, to specify, again, that these goals are not necessarily going to be met in 2030. They might be before or after, but we're on the right track. Again, for the purpose of Saudi Arabia and its modernity and not for the purpose of any other country. And it is by listening to the needs of the people that these goals and objectives will be achieved by understanding where the gaps are that need to be filled, where the obstacles are that need to be resolved and where the challenges are to be taken over by more positive solutions. So I really do believe that in general, regardless of the hiccups that we will see along the way, in general, we're quite happy with the way we're going. listening to CMEX podcast in partnership with the King Faisal Centre for Research and Islamic Studies on Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030. Huda, I'm going to come back to something that's fascinated me again on the theme of, of winners and losers in any kind of change. The empowerment of women for anyone who's visited the kingdom is, is extraordinary and tangible to see, very visible. It must be very difficult for those men who previously may have been able to take their position for granted, but who are now having to compete with, may I say, extraordinarily impressive, talented women. Is that an issue? And if so, how can it be managed? Humiliated populations are are, are not happy and not constructive populations. The question of getting used to it. I think like in any country where there was a move from an all-male society to a more mixed society, people are getting used to it. Admittedly, we are at the stage of using quotas to include women in different sectors. I hope, I believe that we will reach eventually the stage where we can say it is merit, whether it is regarding men or women, it is a question of merit. Who deserves this job? Put the right person in the right position. But to do so, I think we need to go through this phase where the government has imposed a minimum number of positions in different sectors and different ministries and different areas that need to be filled by women. I think that heard, I have heard some men of a certain age who have spoken a little bit against this, And I have also heard some of the younger men who have come back with an education from abroad and who feel that they uh, have been let down because even if they have the same qualifications as a woman, they will choose the woman because it is part of the quota. And I do understand that. But this is going to change, I think, eventually, because you cannot have a society with only 50% of its population being active. And by having 100% men and women working in that society, you will find that the economy of the country will definitely increase, become better. And these hiccups are expected. And like I said, I think that any country that has gone through the similar path that we have seen 
will understand that this is something quasi normal. Dr. Youssef, do you feel that economically in the shift away from oil, that expectations are being met and are on track for Vision 2030? Obviously, it's not, a, it's not an end point 2030, as Huda says, but do you think that expectations will be met? If you look at the transformation that took place so far, it could have taken us tens of years to reach what we are now, but it has happened almost just since 2016 when we started. So I believe the speed at which things have happened so far has been marvelous. And I'm very optimistic. 100% here, one thing, important thing is that, uh, as Prince Mohammed said, it's not just uh, 2030. After 2030, we'll go to 2040. So I believe we here, and but also as uh, Dr. Hedda said, uh, 2030 is maybe it's not the deadline, maybe slight, but it's just the roadmap. So I'm very optimistic, honestly. And I very much congratulate our government on the amazing transformation that I've seen because I've been in the West for 12 years. And when I came back here in Saudi, and the last time I was in 2005, I just didn't know this, this, my country will look something like this. So it is an amazing transformation. And I stay optimistic compared, because I've seen Saudi Arabia before 2005, and maybe even Dr. Huda, we are kind of maybe slightly older than the current generation who have not seen the old Saudi. So I'm very optimistic compared, compared to what it was so far. And I very much, I think even the, the visions put from Crown Prince and the, the political transformation they have seen, the people who have taken key political positions in the country are all very ambitious. And that's what keeps me, in fact, uh, optimistic. Because now things are, uh, like let's say, a, a lot has been done at a very much high speed and with high ambitions. And that keeps me very much optimistic. Can I add a quote from our King? Because I think it sums up exactly this feeling that Dr. Youssef is talking about. He said, we are part of this world and we live the problems and challenges it is facing. We all share this responsibility and we will contribute actively to the development of solutions to many of the world's pressing issues, including the issues of the environment and sustainable development. We will continue in this regard to work with international organizations, institutions, and partners. And I think that this, in a nutshell, has brought in the partnerships, has brought in the responsibility, has brought in the environment, has brought in the social change, and the fact that we are a living society in a living world where you need to partner to be able to go forwards. And I really do believe, uh, as Dr. Youssef has said, that this cannot be done to save, for instance, climate change or any other problems that we are facing without the partners we work with. Just to wrap up, we've talked about Vision 2030 not being the end. What kind of a Saudi Arabia do you hope for and want to see in 2045? Huda, can I ask you first? A Saudi Arabia that answers to the demands of our people without losing our faith, our religion, and without losing some of the beautiful traditions that we have in our country. Saudi Arabia is a huge country. It's, it's, it's close to being a continent and each area has something very particular to it. I would hate to see that our younger people or the future generations um, don't get to know some of the beauty of these, um, uh, of these traditions and the arts, the culture, the, the, the way women and men dress differently in different uh, areas. 
So yes, I am looking forward to seeing, God willing, a, a, a modern Saudi Arabia with all that it has uh, to being a global, international, political power, not just in the region, obviously, uh, but also keeping in mind that it has a lot of um, internal beauty that needs to be preserved. Dr. Yusuf, what is your vision for Saudi Arabia 2045? Certainly what Dr. Hader said is amazing, absolutely, and I cannot add on that, but from my, uh, let's say, economic perspective, looking into what has been done and what's planned to be done, I would hope to see our country moving really towards a uh, very sustainable economy. I would like to see the world's largest innovative companies being available in Saudi. Uh, I would like to see Saudi Arabia, an international financial destination. Perhaps people would think I am too ambitious, but I'd like to see a, mo a London model in my country. I'd like to see the smartest of the uh, high-tech giants all available here, what we can see high-tech industry all represented in this country. And above all, I would like to see Saudi Arabia having inclusive opportunities for all of its citizens to innovate and lead the transformation of this economy moving forward without prejudice to any person. Huda, what would you say to anyone who listens to this and says, oh, that's all just cosmetic and I really don't want to go to Saudi Arabia? What would you say to them? I respect that idea and I respect that the that a lot of people think that way because, uh, forgive me for the use of the word that I'm going to be using, um, I, partly due to ignorance. And um, at the end of the day, it shouldn't be something that we care too much about because what we are serving and what we are doing is serving our country and serving our people. And if that means that a lot of people are suspicious or doubtful of these changes, so be it. It, it is not an easy road travel. It is not, and it hasn't been easy in the past, and it's still going to be challenging in the future. But whatever little success we gain on a yearly, monthly, weekly basis is something to put in our, in our bag. And I, who live here, having lived nearly 29 years abroad before coming back, I'm living a transition, I'm living a history that I'm very proud of living today because, you know, I can put myself in other people's shoes and have people say, Saudi Arabia today is X, Y, Z. And I wouldn't believe it myself, but because I'm living it and I'm seeing it with my own eyes, I'm seeing the ambition that young people have. And, and I think that that is something that's so ingrained in them. They have an ambition, a desire to succeed, to make this country the best possible country in the world. And that comes from pride. And if it means pride in a national sense, whether it is for the country or for the faith, because Islam does play a role when it is translated correctly, because of course extremism uh, does play a, a very negative role in, in the views of people uh, regarding Saudi Arabia. When that happens, there's no limit to what a population can do. And I think that this is what we're seeing today. Um, and I'm, I'm very honored to be living this transition. Really, I am. Should people come out and see Saudi if they have doubts? Please do. Please do. Anybody who doubts the progress that we're living, who doubts what Saudi Arabia is today, I invite them to come and see for themselves what Saudi Arabia is with all its flaws and with all its successes. And believe me, it'll be an eye opener to a lot of people 
because the picture of the reality is completely different than the judgmental stereotypes that flow in the media. That's been a fascinating tour of an enormous subject, Vision 2030, and somewhere as, as large in every sense as Saudi Arabia. Thank you very, very much for your expertise, both of you, and your time. And we will be returning with CMEC to look at other aspects of Vision 2030. Dr. Yusuf, Huda, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much.